The Trexperts and Glorious Live Tour 2023 is concluding oh my. in Columbus, Ohio, December 1st through the 3rd. And what great guests will be joining us at GalaxyCon? The well, circle closes. The f- what? The circle closes. The circle closes. Okay. We started the, uh, in Columbus last year. And now okay, we ended Now we're Columbus. back. And uh, <laughs> The Flash, Grant Gustin will be there. Daredevil Charlie Cox. Hellboy himself. Ron Perlman. Jonathan Frakes' buddy. Mike Tyson. The great <laughs> Bill Shatner. Lost. Will Shatner fight Tyson? That's the question everybody's asking. Oh, that's the question. And who I'd would like win? to see that. That would be the ultimate fight club. Wow. Forget that the cabaret. That's what they should do at midnight. They should do uh, Tyson versus Shatner. Wow. That'd be like Muhammad Ali versus Superman, wouldn't it? The flying yeah. kick alone. <laughs> <laughs> that's an illegal move. <laughs> Communities, Joel McHale be there. Breaking Bad, Gene Carlo Esposito, Sean Gunn, joining uh, joining the festivities. Will he Data be eating a himself. stick of butter? Maybe he will. That's a deep cut. I That's know. a deep cut. That's a specials <laughs> reference. My God, even I didn't get that at first. Oh, my. Um, Terry Farrell and the Not Visitor will be there. Ter- Terry Metalis, Todd Stashwick, so many friends of the podcast will people be joining. People named Terry, people named Todd. <laughs> Anthony Michael Hall, Jeff Combs, you just heard him on the podcast recently. And you'll He'll hear be him there again. as well. And, uh, and so many other great guests. Um, so you don't want to miss this uh, fantastic GalaxyCon Columbus. Fantastic. Coming to it's Ohio totally December 1st through 3rd. Discover the magic of GalaxyCon in Columbus, Ohio, this December, and we'll see you there. Well, here we go, deck 78. This is Mark A. Altman, and we're back on Deck 78 with Stephen Melching, Ashley Edward Miller, and Darren Docterman. Hey, guys. This is, uh, hey, is going to be better than Goofy Golf. We're going to need a bigger podcast for this. <laughs> oh, Steve gave the game away. Guess who we're talking to? You know, we did a very special interview. You know, his birthday is October 29th. You know who else has whose birthday is October 29th? Uh, who? Yours. Is it yours? That's right. I share a birthday with Richard Dreyfuss. Wow. So uh, you could say this was a little birthday present to myself, (laughs) getting to uh, sit down with the great Richard Dreyfuss and talk about all his amazing movies, everything from The Goodbye Girl to uh, Close Encounters to um, uh, American Graffiti. Poseidon. um, well, I didn't talk to him about that, but I know you worked on it. Uh, um, you know, his narration, stand by me. You know what? We didn't talk to him about Tin Men, which is a very oh, Levinson yeah. movie I always liked. Um, but we don't worry, we made up for it by talking about always. 
uh, <laughs> one of Spielberg movies I don't like. But uh, but you'll find and, out because and you didn't talk to him about the Apple commercial. Here's to the crazy ones. Oh. Here's the crazy. He is crazy. He's certifiable, but in the most delightful way, <laughs> in a awesome. totally great way. Well, you uh, know, Darren, you worked with him. I I, I worked with him uh, uh, briefly on uh, What About Bob, and uh, I thought he was way cool, and uh, he gave me that dirty look one day. So uh, we'll talk about it after the uh, <laughs> after. Well, listen, before yeah. before we go to our interview with Richard Dreyfus. Um, I, whose birthday it is on October 29th, along with myself. Um, <laughs> what, tell me real quick, what, what's your favorite, uh, and the funny thing is we're both 29, what's your favorite, uh, what's your favorite Richard Dreyfus movie, Steve? Oh, man. I didn't uh, prepare for this one. I didn't know you were going to ask me that. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I, I know you'll give me shit, so I'm not going to say it. Uh, I was going to make well, a joke that it was the, uh, the, the band director movie that you all hate. Oh yeah, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Holland's Amos. Mr. Holland's Amos. He, 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 he loves that movie. I know. He loves it. Of course we talk he does. About it. Just for no, you, Steve. I, I think it, for me, it's Close Encounters. I think that was the first uh, Richard Dreyfuss movie I saw, uh, certainly on the big screen, and uh, it always left an impression. He's it's such a, a layered, wonderful performance in that movie. This is the motion picture that astounded us, that challenged us, that dazzled us. The motion picture that reminded us, we are not alone. This is the road that took us to the outer limits of a brilliant filmmaker's imagination. The road over 100 million people have taken and will want to take again. The road millions of others will take for the first time. But now the road will take us all even farther. The special edition of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Director Steven Spielberg has filmed additional scenes designed to expand the total experience of the original motion picture. Now Richard Dreyfuss as Roy Neary will share with audiences all over the world the experience of being inside. What about you, Ashmaster? Jaws. I mean, <laughs> come on. He's in Jaws? <laughs> yeah. That's the rumor. Like, he's got a little, a little part. Wow. He's got a really wow. big scar. <laughs> we compared scars during the interview. It was not pretty. Um, I got that one beat. <laughs> and Darren, what about you? What's your favorite? Well, I, you know, Steve stole my thunder a little bit, but uh, I'm still <laughs> loud. Uh, Close Encounters, absolutely hands down. Um, it is, it is one of my favorite films of all time, and uh, his performance in it is uh, is magical and childlike, and. Yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, I, you know, one of the great sadness I have about not being able to uh, participate in the interview was I would love to talk about Close Encounters with Richard Dreyfus one day. Well, you maybe, know what? I'm sure we'll have the opportunity again soon. It, yeah, It could happen. Uh, by the way, I can also confirm that playing with your mashed potatoes is, in fact, childlike. Well, because I have children who just play with their mashed potatoes. Oh, that's right. You I, do have children. I have to say, because I would have a tough time deciding... 
Uh, I, I went to that screening of uh, American Graffiti that Fathom did, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I forgot how good that movie is. Oh, yeah. Kudos so good, to, to George Lucas. Who's this on the welfare telephone? This is going Little Rock, way down the valley. You call from Little Rock, California? Yeah, long distance. My, my, my. Listen, man, what, 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 what kind of entertainment you got in that town? Uh, all we got is you. <laughs> Going to the hop, the freshman hop. You ain't got no emotions. We are going to remember all of the good times. I'm staying right here, having fun as usual. You got in there, kid. More than you can handle. I'm a walking in the Hey, I like the color of your car there, man. What's that supposed to be? Sort of a cross between piss yellow and puke green, ain't it? And, you know, people forget because it's so overshadowed by a little thing he did called Star Wars in 77, but um, and it's called Star Wars, not A New Hope. And, <laughs> yes. uh, and, and American Graffiti is really remarkable. And it's yeah. that same documentary style that he brought to science fiction. Um, but it's just a And they forgot and, about. And Richard, yeah. And Richard Dreyfus is so funny. Yeah. yeah, he's so good. I mean, it's the ensemble is amazing, but Richard Dreyfus is great. And I, I look, I've, you know, one of the first things I ask him about is the graduate, because of course I always remember him mm. having that part of the graduate. It's a great story, which we'll share, you know, when we get to the interview. But um, uh, a lot of great, uh, so many, so many great movies, and including the Goodbye Girl. And I'm not a huge Neil Simon fan generally, but I think Goodbye Girl is, even though parts of it are somewhat dated, he's sensational. Yeah. As is uh, Quinn Cummings, who's terrific, uh, who plays the little girl in it, uh, the right. daughter of uh, Marsha Mason. Uh, so. And of course, I, I have to I have to mention what about Bob because he is truly at his most manic in that movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He is he's full on Daffy Duck, and uh, I just absolutely love it. And I loved it when I was working on it. And it's such a yeah. just a great pairing with him and Bill Murray. The sparks that fly on screen between them are just because they existed great. in real life. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a Pinot Grigio, and whatever cheese goes with that. <laughs> no. I know you had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with him at uh, GalaxyCon, where you uh, had him sign. Uh, I had him the sign for the second time my Baby Steps book that I designed for the movie, and uh, I, I invoked the uh, the thirty year uh, uh, resign uh, <laughs> uh, clause. Clause, correct? Um, he must have gotten a kick out of that. He did. He he thought it was hilarious, and he uh, he actually he actually signed it as Frank Oz. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you're in for a treat. Uh, we're about to uh, share with you an interview that Ashley Miller and I did with Richard Dreyfus at Nightmare Weekend in Richmond, uh, and uh, we hope you enjoyed as much as uh, we did uh, doing it. And we'll be back after the interview with a few closing thoughts.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome to the final day of Nightmare Weekend. I'm Mark A. Altman, showrunner of Pandora, writer for Castle and uh, Librarians. You know Ashley from a showrunner of Dota Dragon's Blood for Netflix, Fringe, and we're both co-hosts of the 430 movie. And today is a very special Q&A for us because we have the opportunity to talk to a true legend of film and we're all here to share it. And to that extent, we want to let you know there's a microphone over here. So we, of course, will be doing copious amounts of Q&A. And I hope you'll have your questions ready and line up for that. But before we do that, we want to introduce you to the great Richard Dreyfus. So, we're going to ask you while people are lining up to ask questions. <laughs> I remember as, as, a, as, a, as a, a kid seeing you pop out in um, The Graduate and thinking, oh my God, that's Richard Dreyfus, because of course I'd seen so many of your amazing films already. Um, and that led to a very interesting relationship with Mike Nichols for you. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, because it's remarkable how you ended up in that film. Well, um, um, everyone of my age bracket in the country wanted a shot at that part. And I knew I was too young, but I wanted to make it to Nichols. And so I did. I, I got past this casting director and that casting director. And finally I was supposed to see Nichols on the next day. And I was told the night before that he had to fly to New York to meet an actor named Dustin Hoffman. And I could feel the wind of inevitability <laughs> go right up the back of my neck, and I knew Dustin Hoffman was going to get that part. But Nichols, being the graceful guy that he is, he took everyone who auditioned for that part and gave him a small part in the film. So he didn't have to do that. And I got offered this one part. And I came in to meet him and he said, have you prepared? And I said, I've been studying with Stella for hours and hours. And he said, are you ready? I said, yes. And I said, shall I call the cops? I'll call the cops. He said, you got it. <laughs> and that's how I got into that film. And then I did um, uh, Carrie, Carrie's. Wait, you did Postcards from the Postcards. Edge with Mike. But my favorite story 
is you met with Mike, well, there's that old axiom, an actor's job is to say their lines and not bump into the furniture, which you've never agreed with. And so you, you go to Mike Nichols to be in Bogart Slept Here, and he wants to cast you after they fire Robert De Niro, and you're like, this is a terrible role, let me tell you how to fix it. And that leads to the goodbye girl. And none of that is true. Really? It's all apocryphal. That's complete horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was, I get a call from a friend of mine who says, did you hear that they fired Bobby De Niro? And I said, bullshit, no one's going to fire Bobby De Niro. <laughs> and then they said, oh no, it was, uh, he got fired this morning and you're replacing him. And you're making, and they told me how much I was going to make, and when we were going to start. And I said, "You've lost your fucking mind." <laughs> and so I called the producer of the film, which at that time was called Bogart Slept Here. And I said to Ray Stark, "Do you want to talk to me for any reason?" And he said, "No," and hung up. <laughs> And that was that. And then about six weeks later, I was at Warner Brothers, and Ray Stark walked up to me and said, we're going to do a reading of Bogart, and we want you to do it with us. And I was just about to say no, because I'm an idiot. And I said, and I was literally going to go, when Neil Simon and Marsha Mason came up to us and went, oh yeah, we want you to do the reading. Neil Simon and Marsha Mason wanted me to do the read. I went, Richard, shut up. <laughs> just do what they tell you to do. And I did, I just did the reading. But I knew from the reading that they would never make that movie because the movie was about Let's say it was about what happened to Dustin after he made The Graduate, after he'd become a star. And they, and I said to them, may I say the problem I see in this script is that no matter what problems a guy has, I don't care whether it's cancer, whether his mother is a Nazi, whether his daughter is uh, on drugs, it doesn't matter. He's a movie star, and people will not empathize with his problems, they'll envy him for his movie star. And that's exactly how Neil felt. And so he, he said, give me two weeks. And two weeks later, the goodbye girl showed up at my door. And it was incredible. the best script ever. And it was simply taking Dustin's life, in a sense, and moving it earlier to before he did The Graduate. And I said, yeah. And we started shooting. And that was, that was the perfect film introduction because we really loved each other, we loved the script, 
We loved working on the script and we made a good movie. And then it was reviewed well and awarded well. And when I was called by my agent, he said, you've been nominated for best actor. And I said, who else has been nominated? <laughs> and he said, uh, Richard Burton, um, Marcello Mastroianni, Woody Allen, and John Travolta. And I said, I'm gonna win. <laughs> and I had it all sussed out, I had it figured out. And I did. <laughs> uh, I was the guy who had made a fortune betting against myself when I did a film called The Apprenticeship of Judy Kravitz. And I knew I was not gonna get nominated, but everyone else said, you're gonna get nominated. And I said, wanna bet? And they said yes. And I won a small fortune. <laughs> and the next one was betting that I would win and everyone bet against me. And I mean everyone in Hollywood <laughs> bet against me and I made a fucking fortune. <laughs> <laughs> and the next year I made even more money because I said to my friends, tell me quick, who won best actor last year? And the, the answer was me. Who won Best Actor last year? Not one person could remember. <laughs> and so I won a shitload of money. <laughs> and, and also proved the point that an Oscar, which is a great thing, is only a great thing for one night. Hmm. And after that, you forget. So keep that in mind. But the movies stand, you know, uh, stand the test of time. And what an incredible year that was for you, 77. You win the Oscar. You're in The Goodbye Girl, which is hysterical and one of Neil Simon's great uh, scripts. And you do Close Encounters, which is one of the top movies of the year as well. And another iconic film that here we are nearly 50 years later still talking about. What a, what a remarkable year that must have been for you to have all that success. You're right. It was even... Uh, only marred by the fact that that Nicolas Cage won for Best Actor, <laughs> which I knew he was going to do, and it pissed me off anyway. <laughs> so, you, you you mentioned how you turned down, you know, or didn't want to do the Goodbye Girl. You have a history of turning down roles that you end up doing and are brilliant in. You were very prescient about Jaws because you turned it down only because you knew how difficult it was going to be. No, I turned it down, um, Jaws, because I hated horror movies. And I just <laughs> thought, I, I'm going to spend seven months, you know, being scared. And, I, and, he, and Stephen kept telling me, you're not scared when you're shooting it, you're only scared when you're watching it. And so I was <laughs> thinking about that when I happened to see the Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, which was a Canadian film, 
and I knew if anyone in the United States ever saw that film, I would never work again. Because <laughs> I thought I was terrible in it. And I knew that I had to get a job before that film opened. So I went back to Stephen and I literally got down on my knees and begged him for the part, which he gave me. And we all went off to shoot. Some years later, I told him about an incident where I was, was what they call deal broke. I was deal broke out of the film. Deal broke means that you got a deal you have a deal, it's legal, and they owe you the money. But they didn't want me for the part. And they made, they made it impossible for me to say yes. They, they forced me to say no. And they did that with rather underhanded, unethical ways. And so, I told Stephen about this, and he said, gee, that's just what we did to Timothy Bottoms to get you into Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like a lump of turd. <laughs> and then you spent, instead of seven months being afraid of the shark, which didn't work, you spent seven months being afraid of Robert Shaw. And Timothy Bottoms. <laughs> I, I, I spent seven months being afraid of Timothy <laughs> and that's the only one I was afraid of. And by the way, um, there's this story that has gone around that there was a feud between me and Robert. It's a lie. It's not true. It was never true. And 25 years after the film was over, they started to spread this story. And it was by uh, Carl Gottlieb, the screenwriter, and Steven Spielberg. And they did, and they're both friends, but they did not realize how much that would hurt me, hurt my feelings, because Robert was someone I revered, and I, I really mean that, I mean, Robert Shaw was the largest personality I'd ever met. He was a great writer, he was a great actor, and I was his pal all during the film. And I don't know what happened. I only know that all of a sudden people were talking about this feud, which would have meant nothing to me, except that Robert's son wrote a play about the feud. And that means that anyone who sees the play or knows about it because of, Valley, uh, because of uh, Vanity Fair or uh, The New Yorker, if they review that film, that, that play, I'm gonna get it in the teeth. I'm going to be the only living uh, member of the cast who has any feelings involved and I will be hurt because they didn't try to tell my truth, they told this feud bullshit. 
And let me tell you, that was not the experience of shooting that movie. We all loved it and loved one another. And for Stephen and for Carl not to understand that, um, it hurt. Well, that show is playing off-Broadway right now. Have you tried to talk to Shaw's son at all? Or, oh, I mean, they have someone playing you in the, in the, yeah. in the play. Well, first of all, they first came to me. This is how I know how this all happened. Because they came to me and showed me the first draft of the play, which was all about Robert's mother visiting the set, which never happened. And then they found out about the feud, and they said they were going to rewrite it. And I said... Just don't, don't hurt me. <laughs> and uh, they went with that. They went with the feud. So the New Yorker did cover it, and the Vanity Fair covered it, and all the important things. And uh, I didn't say anything to Stephen or Carl yet but I am going to see the play this week and hopefully I'll have a chance to talk to some journalist somewhere who I can tell the truth to because it's not a small thing to have the reputation, uh, whatever the reputation is that I have from that review, from that play is not true and it's not fair. And it hurt. And when I say it hurt, I mean it made me cry. And it does make me cry every time I hear about it. Because it means that we don't have the relationship I thought we had. And I saw, I met Robert's granddaughter on a, an Irish talk show. And let me tell you, this, this guy introduces me to Robert's granddaughter, who never met him, and I burst into tears. I just, I mean, for me, it was a chance to say goodbye to Robert. So, I'm hoping, and if any one of you happens to be a journalist from Vanity Fair, <laughs> or aspires to give be. me a call. You, you can trade emotional scars with uh, Robert Shaw's daughter. Um, so, question, obviously it's the 50th anniversary of American Graffiti, a movie that in many ways put you on the map in a huge way. I know a lot of people, you know, certainly who are involved with Star Wars, they say George Lucas, his direction was faster, more intense. What was your experience working with George on American Graffiti, which is just such a, a brilliant film, which maybe doesn't get the attention of some of his later work, but is, is so wonderful. Well, first of all, when it came out, it got all the attention yeah. that the world could possibly give it. I mean, it, it was an amazing cultural phenomena. I'm the only one who said, it's just a little movie. You know, I get these things wrong a lot. And so I said, it's just a little movie. What are you getting all worked up about? And I was wrong. But then he made 
so many films that broke that cultural barrier. And it was just, I mean, Star Wars, ye gods, yikes. And Stephen and George used to argue about whether, what the world would be like had, had a Close Encounters opened first. Because it opened after Star Wars, it was entering a Star Wars universe. And had Close Encounters been the first to open, we would have been making high drama in the stars on other planets. We would have had great writers, you know, including that in, in their territory. And that would have been a very different world, so. Was the documentary style of American Graffiti sort of attractive to you as an actor because you were able to go off book a little, although it was a world that was so alien to you coming from New York to, to then um, be Modesto car culture in California? Well, I, uh, whoa. First of all, I came from New York when I was three. <laughs> so formative years. I grew up in Southern California. And I, yeah, I mean, I was of that culture. I didn't cruise at night. Right. You know, I didn't do that. But I was a West Coast rock and roller, so, or something like that. But um, it was interesting to see George George Lucas is the only person you'll ever think to meet who doesn't want to be a director. He actually doesn't want to be, do it. He thinks it's much too hard, much too much work. So we would rehearse, the actors would rehearse around the car, and George would walk up and go, is that the way you want to do it? <laughs> and we'd say, yeah, and he'd go, okay. Set up the camera here, here, here. And that was it. <laughs> he, didn't say, he never said faster, funnier. He never, he never directed in that way. But he, what he did, which was to prove how classy a guy he really is, is that he took one of his gross points and he had a number of them. And he took that one point and divvied it up among the 10 actors who were the stars of the film. And I have made more money on that one-tenth of one gross than I've made on all of my back-end deals ever since. And George did the same thing for Star Wars and there were only four actors, and he made multi-millionaires of all of them. And he did it before the reviews, before anyone had word of mouth, before anyone had valued the movie. He just gave it away. And that is the single greatest, most generous gesture I have ever heard of. And it has not been imitated by anybody else. 
because he literally made Kerry and Harrison and Chewbacca and Alec Guinness into multimillionaires. So yeah, it was when, when George Lucas comes into this room, I go, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Um, on Close Encounters, in retrospect, Spielberg famously said, once he was a father, that he could never make a movie again in which a father abandons his family. Was it something at the time that you ever thought about, you know, going to the stars and leaving that family behind? And, you know, how do you feel about what Spielberg says about the movie? Actually, what I say is, with all due respect to Stephen, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> to that film than the one we shot. And if he, would, if he had tried to avoid that ending, it would have been a, a, a horrible creative mistake. And Stephen is supposed to say what he said because he's right. married and he's got kids. Right. And I said, no. <laughs> that movie doesn't want to be about... I have the trailer for the sequel to, to, to Close Encounters. And the trailer is close up of me, and I say, I'm the guy that went to the other planet, and now I'm back, and I can cure cancer, and I can give you immortality and perfect health and inner serenity. But I'm not gonna do any of those things until I get myself a strong entertainment lawyer. <laughs> because they're gonna try to fuck me. <laughs> and that's the whole trailer. <laughs> but you did get dragged back for the special edition, which you didn't really want to do. But uh, um, what was? What can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, 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 I thought it was unnecessary to begin with. But I, I, I would never have said no, because I had more respect for Stephen than that. And he wanted to do it. I mean, he reached a point as a director where he had enough power to literally say, I'd like to play around with my movie a little bit. And he did. And it didn't improve the film. But if he has that power, more power to him. Um, I didn't think it added anything. But... I got the part, which was more important. And when we were shooting Jaws, and he told me what his next film was gonna be, I said to myself that I was gonna play that part no matter what. <laughs> and I badmouthed every actor in Hollywood <laughs> in order to get that part. I used to walk by his office and say, Al Pacino's crazy, and... <laughs> Jack Nicholson is nuts, and, and like that. And I talked bad about everyone. And then I said to him, Stephen, you need a child to play this role. And he looked up and said, you got the part. And I knew that I had that combination that was perfect for the role. And if he had agreed to anyone else, I would have probably shot them. <laughs>
you know, Disney now is known for Marvel and for Star Wars, but in the 80s, you were like sort of the king of Disney. You kept that company afloat with Touchstone Pictures, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Stakeout, um, What About Bob? I mean, remarkable run of pictures uh, for them. And that studio, which was like, might as well be called the Richard Dreyfus studio at that point. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, that renaissance of, of movies in the 80s that you did? So, uh, so, so many memorable films. Well, it wasn't my renaissance. It was the renaissance of my generation. It was where Stephen and George and Brian and all these people uh, got a chance to really make the decision as to what movies they were going to make. And as soon as the, the, the money people saw that when you leave it to them, leave it to the creative people, they make oodles of money, they stopped that happening and made the decisions themselves, which made them lose all the money that the creative people had made. So you can say that it was a suicidal, stupid, and immature move on the part of the money people. And they should have left Stephen and Francis and Brian and everyone else, let them go because they had proven that they could create an ongoing audience. So. People, you know, don't talk about always the same way. Obviously, they talk about Jaws and Close Encounters. But you got to work with Audrey Hepburn, which must have been a really exciting time for you as an actor. Yeah. That was... <laughs> well, she's not human. <laughs> she's a demigod, a goddess. And she, like Cary Grant, are not people. They're more than that. And, and that's how I'd always thought of her, and that's what she was. And of course she played God. Who else would play God? <laughs> and she was an extraordinary, beautiful, graceful God. God. <laughs> wow. Well, Let's, let's get some questions up here at the mic because I know you must have questions um, uh, to ask. And uh, we, we've done a Q&A in which Richard has not said the shark is not working the whole time. So let's see if we can keep it going. And please, no wagering because Richard will win. <laughs> Hi, Richard. It's Kat. Um, you know, speaking of always, we talked about how this is one of my favorite movies because the chemistry between you and Holly Hunter was just so... Adorable. Um, I'd love to hear some, you know, things you and Holly did to each other, you know, joke-wise in the back end of the movie. Because I feel like you guys were probably, you and John Goodman and Holly Hunter were probably playing a lot of jokes on each other, and I'd like to hear about those. Actually, um, I was kind of in awe of her, and uh, we we never got to be buddies like let's play jokes, we were, I was desperately trying not to fall in love with her. Aww. And it was hard. And there's some pictures I noticed today. There's just a couple of pictures 
that show us looking at one another and I'm, I'm going, in, inside myself, I'm going, uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and we talked, and we talked about, uh, you know, this is a person who only did 20 films in her whole career. That's it. And she was a goddess. She was better, more than anybody. And she only did 20 movies. And yikes. <laughs> she was so beautiful and really beautiful on the inside. Yikes. That dress, that dance, smoke it in your eyes, one of my favorite scenes with you guys. So thank you for that. And thank you for being here. Thanks. Hi, Richard. I'm, my name's Yvonne. And um, looking back at, like, Close Encounters and Jaws, those were some cutting-edge special effects and animatronics back then. What were you in awe of when it came to those special effects? What was I in awe of? Well, yeah, because, I mean, like, I remember doing the back lot of, you know, Universal in California, and, you know, you'd have that moment where you're on the, the tram and the jaws comes out, and I'm like, I was always thinking, wow, I mean, there was so much work put in to those. Now it's all CGI, you know, and animation of some sort. But, but that, back then it was like a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to make these special effects. Was there anything that really, like, stood out to you that you were in awe of? I was in awe of the whole notion of special effects, of CGI, of blue screen. You know, we, uh, in uh, Close Encounters, we created the largest indoor, uh, the largest outdoor set on an indoor studio. And, you know, we had to control the environment of what happened on the mountain and so we created it within a studio that had been an abandoned Air Force base. That's incredible. And it was, what was amazing was to realize that the guy standing next to me, this young guy named Steven, was thinking all of this in his head. Yeah. And he was, Throwing it out there like, you know, you do know that we had to reconceive Jaws. You know, we started to shoot Jaws and then realized that no one else had ever tried to shoot a film on the real ocean. Right. It was the first one. And it never worked, which meant that every time the shark, shark appeared, it would come up out of the water and go, <laughs> so the shark never worked, which meant that Stephen had to reconceive how he would make this story work without showing the shark. And that's when the music became the shark. Uh -huh. And it was, it was a great case of advanced learning, you know, at the last possible minute. And 
I can remember that all of the old pros, when the shark, when the uh, boat was sinking, you heard, the shark is working, the shark is working. The boat is sinking, the boat is sinking. And it was sinking, and I was on it. <laughs> and so was Robert. And all of a sudden, Freddie Zendar, who had been in the film business since 1920, jumps over us, grabs the wheel, and is screaming, this is the worst. This is the worst. This is the worst. And he was trying to power the boat through onto the island of Chappaquiddick, which he kind of made but didn't. This is the worst. <laughs> and at that moment, there were safety boats trying to get everyone off the boat. And I was trying to help this 70-year-old sound man get his legs over the side. And Spielberg was yelling, get the actors off the boat, please. <laughs> get the actors off the boat, please. And I said, Stephen, he's, he's 70 years old. <laughs> Fuck him, get the actors off the boat. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. And what's amazing about that, too, is like if somewhere were crazy enough to try and remake Jaws today, they'd be shooting in front of a volume screen. They wouldn't, I mean, it would never approach because you actually experienced what was going on. Being on that boat for months after months and dealing with the weather and, and, and all these pro things that went wrong, I mean, your suffering is what created a great masterpiece. It would never happen today. It's, it's true that if they were making it today, they could not make as good a film. But when we made the film, we took for granted that it would be, you know, one problem after another. So that was fine. It was fun. I remember uh, Roy, um, Roy was always, uh, uh, concerned about having his tan. He wanted to be tan. And um, one time there was about a two-week hold on shooting because of the weather. And he called me, Roy, and he said, have they called you? I said, nope. And he said, okay, I'm leaving and you don't know where I am. And I said, Okay. <laughs> and he left. He left because he, he brought his aluminum tan thing, which he stuck under his chin, and he just spent the afternoon getting a tan <laughs> while the crew and the finance people went absolutely stark raving mad trying to get him find him and get him to the set. And he didn't care. He just said, I'm getting a tan today, goodbye. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Emily. Um, so um, I just really more so just wanted to say um, that Jaws had a really big impact in my life and in my mom's life. Like. 
um, it's not necessarily a question, but it's more like just um, my mom's dad was dying of cancer and that was the last film they saw together. And it meant a lot um, So to my mom. And um, this was years ago. And, um, you know, just thank you for that experience. Thank you for being in the film. And uh, we love you. And, and we really appreciate that. And thank you for being here. Good afternoon. My name is Robbie. Uh, first off, welcome to Richmond. So we're happy to have you here. Uh, my question is actually a little bit more broad. You've made so many movies throughout the years, you know, starting off, you know, in the 60s and moving throughout time. You've seen a lot of things evolve, in particular CG, where you see less practical effects, less miniatures, less things like that. And what's your feeling about it? It feels like in a way that we're going into this abyss of everything being not real uh, in the sense that you know, we look at the Marvel films and they're just a bunch of guys standing around acting in front of a big green screen. They don't have that boat in the middle of the water. They don't have those uh, real world experiences to draw off of. How do you feel about that? Uh, I feel that... I'm sorry, I can't hear you very well. <laughs> I, I feel that... Can you hear me now? There you go. When I saw Jurassic Park, I called Stephen... And I said, well, now movies can do anything. They can go anywhere, and they, it's like a traveling uh, carpet. It's like a flying carpet. And you can go back in time, and you can go forward, and you can be believed. You don't have to forgive movies for anything from now on. Because in the old days, when you saw... Moses part the waters in the Ten Commandments, you had to forgive all the strings that you saw and all the fake guru that you experienced because it was a fake. It looked bad. But you, you forgave it. But now, after Jurassic Park, you didn't have to forgive anything because they were making them too well. And that means, yes, there'll be a period of time, the one we're in, where all they do is think of sequels, and that's pretty boring. But there is going to be born in this country, or another, someone who takes all the magic that has been invented and knows how to use it to make it work better. And he, this guy is gonna make movies that are going to make the movies now being made look pale. And the movies will become something enormous and important. Thank you. You've turned down a lot of money to do sequels. You've really, uh, for the most part in your career, avoided doing sequels, whether it be to Jaws or Close Encounters or, I mean, Stakeout it was a notable exception. But um, was that a conscious decision on your point? I mean, American Graffiti, you didn't do more American Graffiti. So, whoa. Well, uh, no, actually, the, the reasons I, there were always different reasons. I didn't turn, I didn't um, do the sequels to American Graffiti because the scripts were terrible. They were all terrible. Yeah. 
So I said no. And that was true of most of the reasons I turned something down. But also, you know, they think, oh, we're making a sequel, you'll obviously want to do it. And I said, I'll bet you. And, and then they would say, okay, what do you want? What do you want for doing the sequel? And I would say, okay, I want a million dollars in fee. I want Steven Spielberg guaranteed as director. Click. <laughs> so that was that. Hi, um, I'm Leo. Um, how to phrase this question, let's see. You've done uh, a, a couple music-centric movies um, in, in your career. Um, um, Want to mention, I think, Mr. Holland's Opus. And I, I was, a, I was, a, I was a, a band geek in high school and that movie came out about the time when I was in high school and I could sort of relate to that movie. Um, how did you get in, involved in that movie, and did you um, like study um, conducting, or did you get visit any high school bands, or how how did you develop your character for that movie? Or were you a band geek in high school? I was not a band geek. I didn't have deaf children and I'm a lefty. <laughs> so that means I can't be a conductor because when you do everything with your left hand, the, the LA Philharmonic, which was playing our orchestra, they all went Because <laughs> <laughs> I was doing everything backwards. But I did a film earlier called The Competition. Mm -hmm. And that was about a piano competition like the Moscow competition. And I knew, I said, I'll do this only if it can be my hands, that the audience can see only my hands playing. And they agreed, which meant I was working for six months to, to learn how to mimic the hands of a, of a great pianist. And I, I watched her play. We knew to the millisecond what was planned to be on camera. And then I sat down and started to imitate her and she would correct. And then I would play it again and again and again, a million times. And then they did the, the Emperor Concerto by the man who it was reputed was better than the man who won the Moscow competition. And that he was, and he was a teacher from SC. And when he played underneath me, it looked like I was playing like him. And wow, the feeling of the best part about being an actor 
is that you get to be these other great people. I mean, I was a great pianist in that movie. And it doesn't take a lot to convince me that it's me. <laughs> and so, and it was hard work. And I loved every second of it. And someone once asked me, how could you play Dick Cheney? And I said, well, first of all, there's a little bit of Cheney in all of us. <laughs> and what you got to do is find your Dick Cheney and bring it out and make it work. And when I say that, I mean it. We have all been monstrously evil. We have all been selfish and, and um, patronizing and superior and all, whatever you, you want to choose. And you've also been Jesus. You know, you, you, you get a chance to play the devil and you get a chance to play Jesus because they're both in you. And I, I think I like playing, I like playing Jesus more than I can tell you. I have played Moses and I have played Jesus and I think Jesus is more fun. <laughs> Thank you. Um, last question, because we're almost out of time. You can readjust that. Thank you. Uh, my name is Eric, and uh, not a member of the New Yorker, unfortunately. I would have taken you up earlier on that if I was. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you mentioned uh, that there's a lot of that with Jurassic Park. Everything is possible basically now in terms of the CGI and all of that. But also you mentioned with all these sequels and all these rounds of movies we're having, um, there seems to be a Darth almost of that great classic movie that everybody just flocks to in a sense, um, or that great epic that it just, I'm thinking back to like Lawrence of Arabia kind of things or even grander than that if that's even possible. But you mentioned that you're waiting for something to come and be that movie. What do you envision that movie to be in terms of what it possesses, whether it's the dialogue or the character development or um, the elements of it? What, do you, what are you longing for? I'm longing, that's a great phrase. I'm longing for a love story that I feel was stolen from me. I, I want to see a love story that, that comes out of my heart and how I feel about love. And I want to see the same thing applied to revenge and um, love of child and love of parent. I want to see, more than anything, I want to see a happy ending. And when I say that, I mean it. We are drowning 
in dystopian bullshit, in, in films that are always after America has failed and like that. And it's not good for us. And it's much harder to come up with a happy ending and one that makes you believe in it, you know. So I think that all the different disciplines of art that go into movie making, they all have to work at the top of their possible brain power and, and deliver something to us that, that costs them and us and is worth it. And that's a happy ending. And that is a happy ending for a panel in which you just spent an hour with a living legend who is also a voice on Bubble Guppies, Richard Dreyfus. It's time for lunch. And See, we told you that would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, but it was like riding a, it was like riding a, a ball, though. You know, he's tough. He's tough to interview. You know what, though? I mean, speaking as the guy who was basically playing Ed McMahon on that show, sitting here going, oh, you are correct, Mark. And the occasional witty bon mot. Um, what I loved about that interview and that experience is that, look, there are some guests you can bring on the podcast, you can sit with them, whatever, you can talk to them, and they will just go. And they don't need your prompting. They don't need to be directed or cajoled or... And that's what I was feeling during that entire experience was just Richard Dreyfus was just, he was just going, man. He was, he was well, he's a wonderful tour. to sit with. You know, he's just to. that kind of guy where yeah. he, he loves being on stage. <laughs> he loves being on stage. He, you saw him light up with the crowd, you know, when they ask questions. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, you got to remember this guy was one of the biggest actors in some of the biggest movies of the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And it's not just the 70s with that trifecta of American Graffiti, Jaws, yeah. and uh, Close Encounters. In the 80s, he was in, you know, Down and Out in Beverly Hills and Stakeout yeah. and Moon Over Parador, you know, postcards from the 80s. Even though these movies aren't as well-known or as well-regarded, they were huge. They kept they were huge. touchstone films yep. in business yeah. back then. He was like the Disney poster boy. Right. He replaced Mickey long before Marvel. <laughs> so... Um, just extraordinary. And then he did these great character actor roles later, you know, in his career with American President and uh, as Cheney and W and uh, stuff. So just a very versatile actor who just has a, a zest for life. Just yeah. loves, he's so like energetic and just passionate. And it's, it's so great to, to see that. Well, and so. uh, obviously his, uh, his voice is so well known, but you, you can't immediately identify it. That's the thing. It's, How does it's, it sound? Well, it, it sounds kind of like uh, like this, Mark. Uh, <laughs> and uh, look, the, the thing about uh, friends you have when you're 12 years old, you don't have those again. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, but look, he's, he's, so, he's so iconic, uh, but... It's strange because he sort of he sort of sidles in to that uh, to that status, and it's really amazing. You know, obviously he he owned the seventies, and like you said, he was 
completely present in the next uh, 20 years as well. So it, it's just amazing. He's an amazing character uh, in more ways than one. Yep, absolutely. And uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And of course, uh, we'll all be back with uh, another all new Deck 78 in two weeks. So we hope you'll meet us, uh, join us there. You can subscribe to Deck 78 at Trexpert Plus uh, and uh, listen on uh, Spotify under Glorious Trexperts, or you can go to the 430 Movie on um, and subscribe via Apple Podcasts. Either way, it's the same great Deck 78 with all your favorite hosts. We're all here, all four of us. So uh, <laughs> don't miss uh, an episode of Deck 78 by subscribing today and follow us on social at Inglorious Trek and 430 Movie Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So until two weeks from now, on behalf of Steve, Ashley, Darren, and myself, Mark A. Altman, who shares a birthday with Richard Dreyfus, <laughs> uh, and I do accept presents, uh, fire the rockets. This means something. Deck 78 is an exclusive podcast from Trexperts Plus.